call to worship this morning comes from 1 John verses 1 through 4. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, what it is, what a blessing it is to have the testimony of those who walked with Christ, saw his glory, shared a meal with him, slept near him in the evening, prayed with him, saw him die on the cross, saw him after he had been risen from the grave, and who bore witness for our benefit, for our glory, for your honor and for your glory. So we gather this morning, Father, to worship Christ. Would you be with us now as we sing, as we pray, as our minds and our hearts tur- turn toward you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.
Doing okay today? Yeah, good week. But have a bad week? Week you'd rather not talk about or I'd take that everybody had a week they'd rather not talk about. Well, hope it was a good week. If uh if it was a bad week, I hope we see that God works all these things for good. Even the worst of times. It's an important theological perspective to have as it serves to secure our hope and joy.
right? Who who was who existed before he was born when he came to earth, right? What's the big what's the big ten dollar word we use for that? When Jesus was was born, came to earth. Not quite. That's quite. That's a good word, but it's called the incarnation. Okay? Use that at school this next week. Okay? That's the incarnation. It's when Jesus came to earth. Okay? All right. Well, we're going to talk about something a little different or related to that this morning. Okay? But to get into it, let me ask you, how many of you guys have ever made something? How many of you have made something before? Like with your hands, craft, what'd you make? Okay, all right. Okay, what else would you make? Okay, made a car, like a real car? Oh, a wood car, okay. Because I, I would believe that. Okay, toy car, what else would you make? Okay, made a car, all right. What else would you make? Okay, all right. So you've made things with your hand. Now let me ask you this. Were you Were you that craft that you made? Are you the same thing? Is that craft? No. The wood car that you made, are you are you the same? No. What you guys made, what you made, Calvin, you didn't get a chance to say it. What are you the same thing as it? What did you make? No, okay. No, okay. <laughs> okay, made a motorcycle out of wood. But are you are you the same as the motorcycle out of wood? No, you're not the same. So when you make things, you know, if you make something, you are not the same. That is not you, is it? In fact, you would have to give up a lot of what you are in order to be that, right? There's a lot of things that you do as a person that you would have to give up in order to be whatever it is that you, that, that, that you made, okay, if you had the ability to do that. Does that make sense? Okay? You're not the same thing as that chair, right okay i'm not the same thing as this phone okay the things that we make are very different from us okay but jesus who we talked about made everything right he was there at the beginning okay it was through christ that the world came into being okay but then he became a human right so we talked about last week that he was born as a person he put on flesh okay he took on human form so how is it that Jesus is fully God and very different, right? Very different from, from people, okay? And yet, how is he fully man, living life as one of us, okay? This is like a conflict of natures, okay? Because God's very different. So how is it that God can be both himself, right, and be one of us? Okay, do you see where I'm kind of going, right? Because God is very different from us right god is he's omnipresent he's everywhere okay you cannot go somewhere and god is not and hide from god okay god's omniscient he knows everything he's omnipotent okay he's all-powerful okay god has all of these attributes that he doesn't share with his with what he creates with us even though we're made in his image in his image he has attributes he does not share with us so when jesus took on flesh when he became human how was he also still God? Okay, so there's a really important passage that I want to read this morning. 
about this. It's where Paul writes in Philippians, and he writes this about Jesus. He says he's encouraging the church to have the same attitude, the same direction of their heart as Jesus did. And he said, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is uh, Philippians 2, verse 5 through 11. He said, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But, and this is the important part, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Okay, do you hear that language there? Jesus, who was God, became man. Being found in, a, uh, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God also exa- highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay? So the, f- the important phrase I want you to hear there is that Jesus emptied himself. When he became, when he took on the form of a human, he emptied himself. Now, does that mean that he stopped being God? No, no. We know that from all other places in Scripture. He didn't cease to be God. Okay? And he didn't lose any of his godness. Okay? Does that make sense? If he loses some of his godness, then he ceases to be God. Okay? But, but he, took on the, he took on human nature. Okay? He didn't become less than God. He didn't stop being God. Okay? And his pouring out of himself, his emptying himself, um, was in full, not just some of his qua- uh, quantities. How many of you ever had a bucket full of water and you emptied it? Right? Okay, what goes out of the bucket? The water. The water stops being in there. But this is kind of strange because it says that Jesus emptied himself, but he didn't lose anything. In fact, he emptied himself by adding. This is what Bruce Ware calls subtraction by addition. Right? Okay, let me, let me give you an illustration. I used this illustration back in the summer when we were doing just digital uh, uh, services, because we believe it or not, we've actually talked about this. Okay, you may not remember, but we have. Yeah, we did. We did back in the summer. Okay, so I'll bring it up again. Let me give you an example. Okay, okay, uh, and I'll and I'll, sh- I'll draw this back to to Christ. Let's let's say this summer, or no, sorry, let's say this uh, this Christmas, you get a brand new shiny red toy car. This is cool. This is an awesome toy car. And you go over uh, Christmas uh, a- Christmas afternoon, okay, and you go over to your cousin's house, and you're going to go and play in the backyard. Well, Christmas uh, night, or, or Christmas Eve night, it rained, okay, so the backyard's all muddy. So your cousin takes your toy car and goes and plays in the mud with that toy car, okay, while you're inside changing your shoes. And you come outside, and your cousin comes running back with the car. Guess what? That car's covered in what? Mud. And you go, oh, no, what did you do to my car? And your cousin said, well, I didn't take anything away from it. I just added to it. What did your cousin add to the car? Mud. Now, what's underneath that mud? A red, shiny car. Exactly. Did the car lose anything? Nothing was taken away from the car. It was just added. But what changed? It was all covered in mud. So it's no longer shiny. It's no longer brilliant. You don't see the glory and the splendor of that wonderful, shiny, brand new car because of the mud. Okay? So here's the important point. When Christ took on humanity, 
He didn't lose any of his godness. Okay? He covered himself in humanity, and that hid all the glory uh, that, uh, that he had when he was with the Father. Okay? Now, he didn't exercise a lot of that. Okay? He didn't exercise a lot of those divine attributes when he took on humanity. He chose not to do that. Okay? So he was clothed in humanity, and it covered those divine attributes. He didn't lose any of it. Just like that car, if you wash that car off, what do you get underneath? All the red shininess, all the glory and the splendor that it was, but it's covered. Okay? You, you can't see it, but it is still there. The same was true with Christ. When he clothed himself in humanity, he didn't lose any of his godness, any of his glory, but you couldn't see it. It was hidden. And he didn't exercise it. He didn't use it. Okay, so he subjected himself to all the frailties and the weaknesses of humanity, right? Because Jesus got hungry, didn't he? He got tired, okay? He didn't exercise omniscience or, or uh, 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 omnipresence, right? He wasn't everywhere at once. He could only be in one place at once, okay? Remember when Lazarus was sick, okay, and, and, and they came and said, Lazarus is dying, and he, and he didn't just go over there and be with Lazarus. He waited, and he traveled, okay? He subjected himself to all the frailties, all the limitations of humanity, okay? Now, why did he do this? Do you know why? He did this so that he might live a full human life, obeying the Father, because that's what was needed in order to save us from our sins, Okay? So that he would live a full human life, obedient to the Father, subject to all the weaknesses and frailties of humanity, in order to live the perfect life we could not live to the point of death on the cross. That's the point that Paul makes in Philippians. So that he might be our perfect sacrifice. So that he might do what we could not do, take our place on the cross, and open a way for us to come to God and have a right relationship with him. Paul says, this is what Jesus, who was covered in the glory and splendor before his birth, humbled himself by being born in that little manger and living a perfect life of obedience to God. This is what he did for us. Okay? And that we ought to take note of that and that we ought to live in the same way that he did. Okay? Is that a lot to kind of swallow this morning? That's a tough one. I hope that that illustration is helpful. I hope it gives you something to kind of think on see Jesus a little more clearly. All right, let me pray for us, okay, and then we're going to sing some more. Father God, Lord, I thank you. Thank you, Father, that you have made difficult things a little more able for us to digest and to think on, Father. Uh, Lord, I thank you that the gospel is a well that even the smallest child can drink from the surface from, from, but even the wisest of persons cannot plumb its depths. So, Father, I pray that what we've talked about this morning has landed uh, on hearts that will think on it, that it will soak in and seat down, uh, and, Father, that it will grow um, much gospel fruit in these young lives. So, Father, would you bless our time as we continue to worship. Bless these young children, Father. May your grace go before them. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Mercy, my God, is the theme of my soul, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last have won my affections and bound my soul fast. Without thy sweet mercy I could not live here. Sin would reduce me to utter despair. Through thy free goodness, my spirits revive, and he that first made me still keeps me alive. Thy mercy is more than a match for my heart, which wonders to feel its own hardness depart. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep for the praise of the mercy I found. Great Father of mercy, thy goodness I own. Crucified Son, all praise to the Spirit, whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon in righteousness mine. All praise to the Spirit, whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon in righteousness mine.
Uh, if you remember, you've seen that line drawing before. It's been it's been a few years, so some of you have never seen it. Um, but uh, but I wanted to use that today because if you paid attention, uh, it's obviously relevant to the season that we're in now, but it's also relevant to what we've seen so far as we've walked through the life and the ministry of Christ since we started the book of John, which you know begins with, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and you see in verse 14 of chapter 1, and God, the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and then we've, we've, we've trekked with Christ all the way through 18 chapters to where now we're Christ is handed over, he goes before these trials in order that he might be handed over to be scourged and crucified. So it rightly represents kind of where we are. So uh, that's why I chose to use that today. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll open to the book of John chapter 18. Um, today's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to cover verses, I'm sorry, uh, John chapter 18 verses 12 through 40. I'm not going to preach all of those verses, but those verses encapsulate you know the, the the text from which I will I will I will I will draw information and and convey it to you. But I want to ask you this question: Have you ever just had one of those mornings, just a just a rough morning, a morning where maybe you're frustrated, a morning that's just particularly difficult for you? Uh, maybe you had a rough morning uh, in transit from your home to here with your spouse, maybe with your kids, because as a parent, uh, especially parent being a parent with 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 kids that are my age, you always feel like you're managing. Sarah and I have this conversation all the time. I feel like we're always managing kids. You know, we want to enjoy our kids, but a part of the responsibility of a parent is to manage children, set boundaries, you know, say yes and say no. My kids say I say no all the time, and I probably do. Um, but uh, but yeah, sometimes that context can just create a, a difficult morning for you. Uh, and, and I don't know about you, but when I have difficult mornings, they, they tend to rattle me. They tend to throw me a little bit. And this morning was kind of one of those mornings, not at my home. My home was fine as far as how I left it. Okay, it was great. When I left, things were good. I think the kids were all reading their Bible and praying, fasting, something like that. I don't know what happened when I left. But for me, when I got here, uh, uh, you know, uh, Evan, Evan is out today not, not feeling well. Uh, so, so he's staying home and, and, and resting and getting taken care of. Uh, so we had to kind of shift gears a little bit with the music. So that was the first thing just before practice. So I was like, okay, well, let's maybe shift gears because the, the Christmas songs we want to introduce are, are largely piano-driven. So I was like, okay, well, the Lord had other plans. So let's let's back up and punt a little bit. No problem. We've done that before. We're professionals. Well, they are. I'm, I'm joining the, the, um, the crowd. So we, 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 we shifted gears. Well, then we had this issue. So the O'Neills brought their beautiful daughters here, and they sat right there, and they, they played and were so, so, so gracious and kind to us, as let, let us play and cute. And then there started to be these horrific, demonic-type sounds that came out of the sound, the, 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 the sound machine back there that is the devil himself. And uh, the speakers were just roaring at us like lions looking for someone to devour. It was a horrible, horrible scene. It was <laughs> all this horrible stuff. The kids are crying, the kids are, are, are thrown, they're, they're, it scares them to death. Jake Elliott's trying to fix the situation. I think Eleanor gets mad at Jake. I think she said something like, I hate you, Jake Elliott. I don't know what happened, but it was, it was a horrible scene. They got really upset. They're crying. Uh, April's over there trying to console them. I think Aaron was laughing at them. I mean, it was a weird thing, and they're upset. I'm just kidding. He wasn't doing that. Um, 
but they were really upset and she's just in, in tears she's screaming crying both the kids are screaming and crying and april's trying to console them and it keeps happening jake is trying to fix the issue we have this situation that comes up sometimes and we just don't know what to do about it because none of us are our techs in that sense so we're like well just uh, you know unplug it unplug it plug it back in you know whatever we can do to fix the issue but it's it's deafening the the noise that comes out of these speakers whenever it just goes crazy um, and it'll scare you. So we're hoping it doesn't happen. At least it hasn't happened yet. We did a hard reboot, which uh, for those of you not in the tech world, that just means we cut it off and cut it back on. And so, and so we did that, and so far no problems, thankfully, because it can be tremendously distracting and very frustrating. So I was not at all frustrated with kids or with Jake or with anything, just frustrated at the circumstance, right? None of us, it was out of our control, you know, uh, and we're just like, oh, so I'm rattled. I'm thinking, I got to preach now. I got to preach in this mess, you know, and so it's just a, a real struggle that I'm, that I'm having. So, um, you know, uh, so all that to say, I know my sermons are normally home runs, but if today's not... You know, there, there you go. It's just because, you know, uh, you know, the devil's wrestling with me pretty hard right now. So um, it's what it is. So having said that, I'm going to pray and uh, to set a tone for myself and, uh, and we'll, we'll roll into this text. Okay, so let's, let's go before the Lord and ask his favor. Father, we do that. We ask you to show us great grace and favor. Lord, we know that we are constantly under your grace and constantly under your favor, um, even, when, even when we're, you know, even when we're, we're, we're wandering from you, Lord, we still have so much grace and favor from you. And you lavish these things from a well that is bottomless. And uh, the, the, the scriptures makes it very clear. So, Lord, I pray for myself this morning that you would give me clarity of thought, Lord, that, that, that all the things that serve to frustrate me or to rattle me or to derail me, Lord, would, would not derail me now, Lord, but I would be able to be intent and focused and, uh, Lord, that I would enjoy you as I often do, as I'm, as I'm able to preach. And, Lord, that you would keep us free from distractions from, from this point to the point that we dismiss. And, uh, Lord, you would give us great focus and allegiance and clarity and love, and love for your word, love for you, um, and love for all the things that come along with being uh, rescued, redeemed, and, a, uh, and belonging to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so John chapter 18, starting in verse 12. So let me give you a little bit of a setup. Here's my objective for today. I want to, and it's simple, I want to thoughtfully consider the events leading up to the scourging and the crucifixion of Jesus. So this is a place in the text that it can be easy to just kind of roll right past. You know, Jesus goes before the, the, uh, the high priests. He goes before the ruling authorities of Rome, and he goes through these trials you know, and, and, and sometimes our mind, or at least how I'm reading the scripture, it, I, I tend to fast track it to the scourging and to the crucifixion. You know, and those are going to be for next week, and we're going to get into those things, and it's going to be, I think it's going to be great. Uh, but I wanted to just take some time and camp out here on these events that are transpiring leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And I think many things will be revealed through this. One thing I'm going to do differently today than what I normally do is rather than having bullet points, uh, like, hey, point one, point two, or truth one, truth two, or whatever I normally do. I'm just going to kind of walk through the text in almost like a commentary fashion. Now, there will be application, and I'll show you kind of the so what factor. What are you doing with this? What does it mean for you? How does it apply? But I'm going to walk through because there's a lot of different things that happen. And I want you to keep in mind a few things. This story is recounted in all of the Gospels. That doesn't happen a lot. Uh, not, 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 every detail there's different 
there's different depictions or different renderings of this story represented in the four different Gospels. But oftentimes when you're studying the Gospels, you'll see where one story is captured in Matthew, Mark, and Luke or the synoptics. You won't see it in John because John is very different. Or you'll see something in John that you don't see in the others. Or you'll see something in two that you don't see in the other two. So today I'm going to kind of pull from all four Gospels. We may not go to that Gospel. We might stay in John. So understand if I say something about Herod or if I say something about a dream that Pilate's wife had. Uh, that's not captured in John's version. That's captured in Matthew's version. So just understand that I'm not making stuff up if you're not familiar with the story. You can go back and fact check me if you'd like uh, looking at the uh, Gospels. But the, uh, the idea is to give you a thorough presentation of these events that lead up to the scourging and the crucifixion of Jesus. So here we go. So here's where the text starts in verse 12. So the band of soldiers, you know, Jesus has been arrested. We looked last week at Peter denying Christ, but just before... Just before Peter's denial of Jesus, we see that Jesus is arrested and then Jesus is brought before the high priests. Their names are Annas and Caiaphas. And Caiaphas has surfaced before in the text, which we'll see in just a little bit. So trek with me here as we walk through this story. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. First, they led him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Again, remember that it was Caiaphas, verse 14, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man might die for the people. Where does this come from? John chapter 11. I know there's been a lot of sermons between John 11 and John 18, but Caiaphas was a part of the big coup or the big plan to take out Christ, to kill Jesus. Caiaphas was the ringleader of these things back in John chapter 11, and I'll highlight some of those things in just a little bit. So understand that you've got You've got Annas, who is the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas is also the president of the Sanhedrin. Okay, I don't know if they use the term president then, but that's how, uh, in my studies, that's the word that they use. So maybe it's an equivalent of what we would understand to be the president of something, an organization, or whatever. So he had some ruling and governing authority. So then we get into the denial of Peter, and then verse 19 picks up with that part of the story. The high priest, Caiaphas, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've also taught in synagogues and in temples where, are, where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me that I said to them, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck him with his hand. More on that in just a second. So I think it's interesting that Jesus, and this is just a, a kind of a side note in the journey through this text, how does Jesus appeal or how does Jesus respond to Caiaphas when Caiaphas starts to question him about these things that he's been teaching or saying or doing? Notice that Jesus does not appeal to his, to his miracles. He doesn't appeal to raising Lazarus. Jesus doesn't appeal to giving sight to the blind man in John chapter 9 by spitting in the dirt, making mud, and rubbing it in his eye. Jesus doesn't appeal to those things. He doesn't appeal to all the miracles, changing water to wine. He doesn't appeal to those things. He appeals to his word. He appeals to truth, which for you and for me should say something about the power of truth, the power of the word of God, the power of absolute truth. And Jesus appeals to that as opposed to some of his miracles. And let that be of an encouragement to you. 
Because if you're witnessing to someone, you're evangelizing, you're sharing Christ, and you want to go, well, Jesus has done these things. I'm trying to argue that he's, that he's God. Only God can do these things. He, raises, he raised Lazarus from the dead. You know, He did all of these amazing things. He fed 5,000 people. Well, in actuality, it was probably closer to 15 or 20 or maybe more thousand people, including women and children along with the men. So you see all of these things, and we can appeal to people in those ways, and that's good, and it's right. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But rest assured that even if you can't remember a single miracle, but you know that the Scripture says that in Him dwells the fullness of deity in bodily form, that you can recall or recount all these things that you've read in the Gospel of John for this last year and some change that point very clearly to the deity of Christ, that's enough, even if it's not His miracles. Because that's how Jesus appealed to them. He just said, look, talk to them and ask them what I taught them. Ask them about the things that I said. He didn't say the things that I did, but ask them about the things that I said. So I think this is, this is important. So this is Caiaphas asking him these questions. So it's important that you probably know a little bit about what the role of the high priest is. Okay, I'm really trying to take today to paint this picture of what it looked like for Jesus to stand trial here. He's standing before Caiaphas. This is the office of high priest. The high priest served as the president of the Sanhedrin. Um, he was of the Hyatt, that, which, was, which was the highest council. Um, he was the chief religious authority. He controlled the temple treasury. He managed temple police. They had those. He performed religious rituals. And he was a liaison between Roman authority and the Jewish population. So he swung a big stick. He had some clout, right? This is Caiaphas. This is a guy that, you know, he had some, he had some, he had some strength behind what he did. He had some backing behind what he did as a representative of Rome and as a chief religious authority. So Jesus goes before Annas and Caiaphas. Now, this is what's also known as the ecclesiastical trial. So there's two forms of trials that Jesus goes through here. There's an ecclesiastical. When you think of the word ecclesiology, that's the doctrine or the study of the church. Okay, so this is all things religious. Caiaphas and Annas were not uh, not a part of the civil authority. That was Rome. That was Pilate. And that was Herod. So they're before this ecclesiastical. All things religious. That's why they're brought before these men first. Because with Caiaphas being the high priest, you know, he's the one that's going to ask these questions or push the issue with regards to all things religion. So Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus is making these claims and they're considering him a blasphemer because he's made himself to be God. So that's why it goes before them in this first ecclesiastical trial. So he's being grilled with these questions and Jesus doesn't plead for his life. He doesn't ask for grace or mercy. He just says... Why don't you just ask people? Look, I've, spoke, I've spoken openly. Every time I'm in the temple, every time I'm in the synagogue, I've, just, I've, I've laid it down just as the best I know how, well, perfectly. You know, I make no bones about things. Here it is, you know, not cutting corners, not splitting hairs, just here it is. And so he's answering these questions as a part of this trial that he's become, uh, that he's become a part of. So these are the ecclesiastical trials, and then there's the civil trial. And I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but just to paint a, a picture. Jesus goes to Pilate, and then he's sent to Herod, and then he's sent back to Pilate, where Pilate would make the decision. That's the civil authority. That's the ones who would say, uh, you, could, you, can, you can sentence this person to death. 
or that's the one who could actually execute. That's the one who could carry out the sentencing. The Sanhedrin could, could give the sentence of death, but they couldn't carry it out, which you'll, that'll make sense in just a minute. So anyway, trekking with me so far, right? A little classroom-esque today, so hang in there with me. I'm going to walk through some of these things and get to some application and make you feel real great about yourself just in a little bit, all right? So, but here's something that's important. When Jesus is going through these trials, and it continues on, we look at verse 22, 23, Jesus answered him, I'm sorry, we got to where verse 22, where the soldier struck Jesus, and you just have to notice the irony here. Okay, so Austin has already talked about uh, two sermons ago where Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. You see more of kingship language. You see prophet language. You see these things happening here in this text as well. But listen to this. Here's the irony is that the soldier offended or trying to probably save face or build his own reputation in front of the high priest Caiaphas. He strikes Jesus in the face because Jesus dared to speak in whatever way he spoke to Caiaphas that they thought was unfitting of someone to speak to a high priest. So he strikes Jesus, and the irony is this. Jesus is the high priest. He doesn't see it. So where the soldier would say, how dare you speak to this earthly high priest this way, he dares to raise a hand against the anointed one. He dares to raise a hand against God with us and strike him. Do you, not, you see the irony here? Do you see the offense here? Do you see the, the depravity of man, the ignorance, the wickedness, and all of the things just come creeping up? Because this guy standing beside Jesus, the true and definitive high priest. This is why there's no priesthood. There's a priesthood of the believers. But this is why we don't subscribe to the Catholic doctrine of, 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 of the priesthood. You know, we think Jesus became our high priest, and his priesthood is definitive and sufficient enough, and his sacrifice was enough that these sacrifices don't have to be made. Jesus is the bridge to God, okay? For now and forevermore. And so this is a, this is a big deal. So this soldier dares to strike the true and eternal and sufficient high priest. So when you're reading through here, and if you've ever just not caught that, just let that give you pause. Let that marinate, let that sober you. That this man's depravity would take him so far as to strike Jesus in the face. Now we're going to see much worse things happen to Jesus next week. So hopefully you can stomach those things. But this is what's happening. So as it continues in verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 23, Jesus answered him and he said, If what I said is wrong, then bear witness about that wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, uh, sent him bound to Caiaphas, uh, the, the high priest. And then we have Peter's denial of Jesus again. And then verse 28 picks up where Jesus is before Pilate. So before we move into that exchange, let me explain this to you. There is something that's going on here that was already in motion. And it's just coming to fruition. So these plans of men were made, specifically in John chapter 11, and now these things are coming to fruition. So uh, we're going to spend just a second there, but I want to take you over to John chapter 11 if you want to turn there with me, and we can see what happens here. But before I read that, I want to share with you these things. So a few things to consider. Now, I think these are pretty, pretty major and I would wager that many of you, if not all of you, but I would say many of you probably didn't know these things because um, they were fa fascinating for me to learn. 
So consider this first for a moment. Again, Jesus, the judge of all creation, is now being judged by his creation. That part I'm sure you knew. Jesus is being judged. Jesus, the, the, the creator, is being judged by his creation. Jesus, the good and true judge, is being judged by his creation. He's being judged by broken, fallen men and broken, fallen women. So not just any creation, corrupt, vindictive, self-seeking men. Consider this as well, that there was never any real intention on giving Jesus a fair trial. I know that none of us are experts on, on how these things took place back in the first century. Maybe you've read more of it than I have, but I am surely not an expert on these things. But let me share with you a few things. It was never the intention to give Jesus a fair trial. You say, how do you know that? How do we know that this wasn't fair? We understand that it was wrong. We understand that he was innocent, so that's not fair. But how would you say that he was not given a fair trial? So listen to this. The events of Jesus' trial took place illegally. These things were not right. They were not lawful for these things to happen. And here's how. No trial for life was allowed during the night. And Jesus was facing what? The death penalty. That was the verdict. Jesus was, that was the sentence. Jesus was tried and condemned during the hours of around 1 to 3 a.m. on a Friday. This was a time that death sentences, this was a time that that kind of trial could not and should not, according to law, take place. So malfeasance number one of it being an unjust, illegal, and unfair trial. Also, the arrest of Jesus was effected as a result of bribery, namely the blood money which Judas received illegally. So these things are already manifesting or taking place under the table. You know, this is already just the, the fruition of a plan that was concocted, a coup that was dreamt up and acted on back in John chapter 11. And then Jesus was asked to incriminate himself. It's almost like being in a court of law and someone very systematically, very carefully setting you up for, for perjuring yourself or self-incrimination, and these things cannot be done. So Jesus was asked to incriminate himself, which was again unlawful. And then finally, in the case of capital punishment, Jewish law did not permit the sentence to be pronounced until the day after the accused had been convicted. And this is not the case with Jesus. So all of these things come up to mean that this was an unlawful trial an unlawful, under-the-table, shady situation. Why? Why was this allowed to happen and transpire the way that it did? Because there was no way that these religious leaders who were jealous, who were envious, who were fearful, who were hateful, were going to allow it to go any other way. This went exactly the way they wanted it to go. All of this didn't matter to the authorities nor the people, all of these illegal acts. It was long ago decided that Jesus would be put to death. So we get to John chapter 11, just as a reminder. Verse 45 says this, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, by the way, he had just raised Lazarus for context, they saw what he did and they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are, the, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. 
If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Well, one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And that for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So now it makes sense when we see just a moment ago how Caiaphas was involved in this shady, dark entanglement. He was the ringleader from the, from the word go back in John chapter 11. It was always their plan to have these things, and it, was, uh, and it was carefully thought through. Now, keep in mind, all of these things, well, these things have taken place. You have the religious authorities who are leading the way. We haven't been introduced to the angry mob, to the crowd that have been stirred up yet. So these are these religious leaders that, speak, that are spoken of in John chapter 11. And you, want, you, you would ask yourself, okay, so you talk about take away, the Romans might take away their place, they might take away their nation. So why were they, was it just envy? Is that what, what drove them? So let me explain that just, just a moment so you can kind of see the, 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 the engine that's, that's driving this vehicle to get, to get Jesus where they want him to be. We're not talking about the God factor of this yet because obviously there's a, there's a beautiful sovereignty that's at play in all of these things that you can already see written on the wall. So to them, Jesus was a threat to their authority. To them, Jesus was a threat to their status because you're talking about pious men of religiosity. These same men who Jesus warns about that would seek to kill the apostles in the name of their God. Jesus to them was a threat to their following. I mean, they were the the, the religious movers and shakers in the first century. They had all the clout, they had the authority, they had the ears of the people. People were, were sheep and peons and they didn't, know, they didn't know right from left. They'd been exposed to the Mosaic law, but they were told what to believe, told what to think, told how to live, told how to act by those that God had put in place as the religious authorities. And they liked that power, they liked that position that they had, and Jesus was a threat to that because if Jesus and everything he said actually happened the way that Jesus said it would happen, all of that would crumble for those religious authorities. So Jesus was a threat to their way of life. He was a threat to their way of life, and he was a threat to their nationality, meaning if Jesus was truly the Messiah, it would change everything for them. They were afraid that Rome, the Roman Empire, which really ruled the Jewish nation, would strip Israel of its autonomy and destroy the temple and cause them to no longer exist as a nation. That is what they feared with regards to Rome coming and taking their place and their nation. Strip them of nationality, strip them of autonomy, and essentially become the slaves of Rome, in a sense. Or have to become Roman, in that sense. So that's the root motivation behind that. Basically, if we don't kill Jesus and they keep believing and following him, we lose everything. We lose place, we lose nation. Our place, the city of Jerusalem and its temple, our nation, they will put an end to our national existence. In other words, if we can get rid of Jesus, everything can go back to normal. And we'll be fine. So they're highly motivated to get rid of Jesus. I mean, put yourself in this situation. 
And I'm not saying that we're going to read each other's mail out loud and say, well, here's a time that I kind of drifted into darkness because of X, Y, and Z. But just put yourself in the situation. Even as a believer, not as a lost person, but even as a believer, you know, we, we, we care about things and we put things in lofty positions that we shouldn't put in those lofty positions. You know, that's, that's the reason sometimes our pride gets the better of us because we want someone to think this of me and then something else is exposed showing that I'm really not worthy of being thought of in this way. And so maybe we're willing to do things to protect ourselves or to save face or to keep things the way they are. You know, I don't want everybody knowing my deep, dark sins of my life. I mean, it's, it's bad enough knowing that I'm going to stand before the Lord and my mail's going to be read out loud at that point. You know, it's bad enough to know that. And I'm kind of an open, vulnerable person, but there's just things that bring shame in my life and reproach on my life that I'd just rather not discuss. And you're like that as well. And pushed in a corner, the temptation would be, let's do what we can to, 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 not, to not bring that junk up. Let's do what we can to make sure the outcome's a little bit different. Now imagine you are someone darkened in their understanding, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you to wage war against sin. Imagine you're that person. There's no limitations to what they would do. If Peter denies Jesus, imagine what a lost person will do with regards to the person of Jesus Christ. So they had motive to make sure that Jesus was handed over to be crucified, right? I love this quote from John Piper. He says, the plot was not a, for, uh, the plot on behalf of the, the religious authorities was not a quest for truth, but it was a quest for survival. Their interest was not in truth. Their interest was not in what Jesus actually came to do. Their interest was self. Their interest was preservation. And what a damnable marking on the believer when self-preservation is the marking of his or her life. So we move on in the text. So go back to John chapter 18. We've read verse 22. We see that Jesus is interacting here and that the, he's interacting with the high priest and then the soldier strikes him and challenges him on the fact that he dared to speak to the high priest that way while Jesus was the high priest. Yet Jesus didn't say this. He didn't say, hey, you know who you struck there, son. I mean, and he could have. That's what's crazy about this. The, the, I'm not saying that Jesus at this moment wrestled with, with any kind of self-control issues. I'm not saying that he wanted to rear back and punch this guy with some kind of supernatural nuclear fist face punch thing. I'm not saying this is going on. I mean, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't pretend to know the, the, mind, of, the mind of Christ unless he's revealed these things. I just know that as a lamb led to slaughter, he was silent before its shears. And he, and he did not utter a word other than answering questions. He didn't demand that a legion of angels would come and wipe out everybody. He didn't demand those things. He just responded. And then you have the rest of Peter's denial. And then we move to verse 28. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Just so you know, there's a lot of debate on this interpretation and it may 
not seem like something to you that would need a lot of study or research, but it's pretty interesting some of the the thoughts that go into what this what this means. But suffice it to say that there was some understanding that if you're in the governor's headquarters with a heathen, that it was supposedly, especially during Passover, and some of the debate was it all the time or just during Passover, but specifically during Passover. If you go into the governor's place or this place where, uh, where these things would happen, in this case in Pilate's, in the governor's mansion or the governor's headquarters, that they would be defiled and then not be able to partake in the Passover. So that's why they stayed outside. Just a little FYI there. Just take that and, uh, and, and roll with that. So Pilate went outside and said to them, What accusations do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not, uh, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So Pilate said to them, well, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They're showing their cards, obviously. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. If you remember in John um, I believe it's John chapter 12, verse 23, uh, John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus speaks to the apostles about what death he's going to die, and he speaks of the Son of Man being lifted up. And it might be easy to look at that and say, well, that's talking about the, 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 the resurrection. No, it's talking about the Son of Man, the way that he was going to die, because in that text, he says, I'm going to die, I'm going to be lifted up. He said this to them so that they might know the way in which he's going to die, by cross, to be lifted up from the earth, to be suspended in the air until he is until he is dead. So they wouldn't go in there. And we see here in this text that, that, that these things happened just as Jesus said that these things would happen. These things are also happening just as they had planned so far for these things to happen with regards to the religious leaders and the religious authorities. So they're sent to the president of the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas. We see that. We see that now they're before Pilate who is a Roman governor who presided over, the, over, over Jesus' trials or over Jesus' trial. It's not recorded in this text, but then he's sent over to Herod. Herod is a ruler over in Galilee. Herod says, I find no fault in this man. You know, they don't want to deal with it. They see that there's some problems here. What, what do you really bring as an accusation against this man? What can you really say? And that's, that's, that's the major problem that Pilate and that Herod are having. Because, again, this is the civil trial. They don't so much have a dog in the fight like Annas and Caiaphas have with regards to the ecclesiastical trial, the things that deal with the religious matters. Pilate doesn't care about the religious matters. Pilate and Rome have kind of just been tolerating them, allowing them to have their, their, their autonomy, and they do what they do. You know, we'll have our pagan gods, y'all have your God, you do your thing, whatever, just, um, you know, mind your business. Why are you bringing this to my table? Why are you bringing this to my house? Why is this something that I've got to deal with? Pilate clearly didn't want to deal with this, neither did Herod, so then Jesus goes back before Pilate. And all of these events uh, bringing to fruition a number of prophecies from the Scriptures, by the way. A number. I think it's counted to where there's like 400 prophecies that have been fulfilled um, throughout the scriptures, saving one, and that's the return of Jesus. So Pilate was somewhat disinterested in the case until he became somewhat interested. 
So in Matthew's gospel, when he's getting ready to dismiss this thing, he's sitting there and his wife comes in. And his wife says, look, I had a dream about this and you don't want anything to do with this. This is bad mojo. This is bad business. You need to stay away from this. So he's trying to get rid of the situation. He's trying to bring it to an end as quickly as he can. He even goes so far as to wash his hands of it, probably to just take care of his own skin. Hey, my wife had a premonition. She had a dream. Something's going down. I don't feel good about this. She doesn't feel good about this. Let's roll this thing out. Let's get it done. I'm going to wipe my hands of it. I'm going to be done with this and look at it no more. Verse 33, so Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say this about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. I want to stop right there, because this is critical, critical stuff right here. So Pilate's asking Jesus these questions, are you the king of the Jews? Are you these things? And Jesus says, look, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is a large conversation, by the way. It's a big concept. And it's defined in different ways, right? Of course, there's wrong ways to define it. There's right ways to define it. The scripture speaks to it a good bit. Maybe you've heard of the kingdom of God being already and not yet. There's a sense in which the kingdom of God is now. The kingdom of God in which Christ rules and reigns in the hearts of all those who believe. He is our king now. There's also a sense in the kingdom of, is not yet. And that is in the sense in which the Lord will establish a, a future kingdom, a new heavens, new earth, and all of these kind of things. I don't know if that rubs the post mills the wrong way, but uh, there it is, right? So, uh, you know, so here we go. The scripture speaks of these things. It says in Luke 17, 20 and 21, being asked by the Pharisees what the kingdom of God would, uh, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that, we, that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Matthew 3, 1 through 2 says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there's a lot of kingdom language, a lot of kingdom talk. So it's, 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 it's something to consider, something to think through and explore and understand to the best that we can. But here's something I want to make clear to you. Jesus, when he says, my kingdom is not of this world, he is not speaking of, his, of the universality of his rule and reign. Okay, He is the king of all kings. He's the creator, sustainer, ruler of all things. No, no question about it. Okay? Always will be. However, what he means here is ruling and reigning in the hearts of those who believe. He's speaking of that kingship. It's very specific. It's very specific. And it's evidenced through the rest of the text, by the way. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate says to him, what is truth? So Jesus is saying, this is my kingdom. This is what I'm wanting you to know. And then we get a little confused because we start seeing things like, well, Jesus said if this was his kingdom, that people would come and, and, and basically make sure that he's not delivered. And that's not the way we're supposed to look at this because that could be contradictory if we're thinking that, okay, he does rule and he does reign in the hearts of men who believe. But he's saying, hey, if I did rule in that way, then they would be fighting for me. Well, other than Peter, who's fighting for Jesus? 
I mean, Peter got bold for a second, chopped off an ear, and then he denied Jesus. Okay, so, okay, so Peter's kind of on the back burner. Okay, you, you, you peaked, man. It was quick. Now you flaked out. So we've got this issue to deal with. What does it mean, the kingdom of God here? He's saying, my kingdom is not of this world. But he means I'm ruling and reigning in the hearts of men. I want you to understand this, because this is really important. Do you think that the angelic realm would have for a moment, unless commanded to do so, stepped in and intervened throughout all of this? No. Why? Because a worst case scenario would be for anything to stand in the way of the cross. Therefore, standing in the way of the gospel. Therefore, standing in the way of the only hope in this life. So no, an angel would not have stepped in and said, uh, I'm going to put an end to this. And how many would it have taken? One. And it wouldn't even have taken an angel. It would have taken a word, a wish, a thought, a desire of the king himself, and all would have been done. But that's not the plan that was laid out. You see, there's two plans that are always at play here. There's the plans of men rooted in the heart of men. Then there's the plans of God rooted in the mind of God according to the character of God and the sovereignty of God. That's what's happening here. And nothing ever will thwart the plans of God. Nothing can frustrate the will of God. Nothing can resist the will of God, the Scripture says. So all of these things that transpire are not only rooted in the plans of men for what you meant for evil, but are rooted in the plans of God, God meant for good. God didn't make lemonade out of lemons. It was always his plan. We're taught that by, by, by Luke in his gospel where he said, you know, Jesus was handed over to be scourged and, and crucified. This was all according to what God's hand and plan had predestined to occur. All of these things, the way that it laid out was, was, was divinely inspired and sovereignly carried out. And happening exactly as God wanted them to. So all of these things was an absolute and total success with regards to the sovereignty of God. And then there's this notion of comparing Jesus and his kingdom to any earthly kingdom. And I have to just mention, it's, it's ludicrous. You know, are, are, are you a king? To, to, to somewhat even pretend that Pilate could somehow in his brain process the magnitude of the kingship of Jesus is ridiculous. Pilate's trying to wrestle through these things. It's almost like I wish Jesus would have said, look, man, stop trying. You, you wouldn't get it. It's, it's, it's beyond your, your comprehension. You know, it's like trying to compare Alexander the Great with some teenage, uh, some, some, some teenage strategist for a paintball team. <laughs> I mean, you got a, one of the most brilliant war strategists the world has ever known, and, you know, me when I was 15 trying to be the, the strategist for our paintball team, right? That's like, you know, so you've got Jesus who, is, who is, has a kingdom and who has rule and who is a high priest and, and a prophet, and then they're trying to understand this. So you're a king? Well, why are these people, uh, why are they against you? Why are they turning you in? Caiaphas didn't want to deal with this. He's like, look, man... <laughs> You know, I mean, this doesn't make any sense. The kingship of Jesus was, was not just, it was different for many reasons. One of those is that Jesus was born a king. I mean, he was born a king. 
He wasn't born to be a king in a succession or a lineage. I mean, he was born a king. He was the king from, from the go. So, last few verses. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said these things, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. For Barabbas was a thief or a robber. And so here's where we get into some of this final application. There's just some things that I see here in this text that I, that I can't ignore for my own life. So I'm going to share them with you as we kind of bring this in for a landing. It would be a, a detriment to us to gloss over these last few verses or these last statements with regards to Barabbas and his release. This was a custom during Passover. And again, there's some debates about the details of this, some of the, the fine print. But again, this was, a, this was a custom that would take place during Passover where someone who was uh, incarcerated could be released and a, a someone else could take his place. I don't know what the terms were. I don't know what the stipulations were. You know, I, I don't know what the criterion was for that or the criteria, whichever you say for the plural. I don't know what it was. You know, it doesn't matter, really. It doesn't matter. We just know that it was a custom. And in fact, Caiaphas or Pilate says, hey, do you, wanna, do you, wanna, do you want Jesus? Or do you want this man? I mean, he's, he's your king, you know, give him, come on, give him a chance. And Caiaphas is probably wondering, you know, what kind of king are you, man? Your people don't even follow you. You have this massive mutiny on your hands, and yet you're a king? I mean, that was a big deal. You know, when you're thinking of, 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 of monarchies and things of that nature, and there's a mutiny, I mean, first of all, it's punishable by death, and death of the worst extreme, but that's no small thing when anybody rebels or commits mutiny against the king. And Pilate's seeing this. He's saying, you're the, you're the king, but you get no respect, man. Nobody, nobody's here fighting for you. Nobody's worried about you, man. They're, they're, the, the, the religious authorities, they're all stacked against you. And he offers to give them Barabbas, and that's the option that the crowd went after. Now, there's another gospel account that talks about when Pi, uh, Matthew and Pilate is, is in there talking to his wife. The religious authority, go, they go out there and they basically stir up the crowd. It's not captured in John's gospel, but it is in Matthew's. So understand that it's now not just the religious authorities, but now you have the, the, the mob, you know, that they got worked up. Those guys get out there and they're like, hey, you know, we're going to have our nationality stripped. You know, they're going to, you know, all this is going to happen. You're going to lose all your freedoms. You know, he doesn't really love you. He's a blasphemer. You know, and it's just a, you got a crowd following situation, you know, uh, it just went from bad to worse. And this is a moment where the depravity, the wickedness, the ignorance, and perversion of men is at its peak. These leaders, fueled by their own pride and jealousy, led the multitude to stand against Jesus. Look, you don't want to be a part of either one of those parties, but here is the reality. In this life, you're a leader or you're a follower. There's no neutrality when it comes to these things. You either follow people or you lead people. Either someone that stands out and says, hey, I'll, 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 take, I'll take charge of that, or you're someone who's better suited to say, hey, I'm a yes person. I'm a yes woman. I'm a yes man. I do well with instructions. I'll follow. And that's fine. The Lord has wired us differently. And in this situation, you have two bad camps. You have people leading, and they're leading in a bad way, and then you have people following because they're just followers, and they're just wanting to appease one another. 
and they're just wanting to acquiesce to whatever these leaders are telling them. And the leaders still had authority, or they still had influence over them. Don't forget these things. No one has ever regretted choosing Christ above other things. Let me make that clear. No one has regretted choosing Christ over other things. No Christian will come to you who's a genuine believer and say, I've always regretted this decision. I had an opportunity to be unfaithful to my wife. I had an opportunity and, uh, you know, and, 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 and I denied myself. I denied myself, I, 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 I walked away from a situation that could destroy everything, and you know what, I regret it. That would have been fun. No Christian says that. No Christian regrets making a hard decision to deny themselves and follow Christ. But what Christian among us is not filled with? with regret every time he or she chooses something over Christ. And I think there's a lesson to be learned here by watching this crowd who follows these men who are bad men leading them in a bad way. I think there's something to be said about this crowd that says, give us Barabbas, give us a thief, give us a robber, give us someone that's guilty of, a, of, of, of conduct in an insurrection, uh, a rebellion against the government. Give us that guy. Give us a known offender a known criminal, and some would argue that he was guilty of murder as well during the insurrection. I think one of the gospel accounts might say that. I can't remember, so check me on that. But they say, give us that guy. Don't give us Jesus. Don't give us the guy that, that did all these great things. Don't give us the guy that, that promised us hope in the future. Don't give, us a, don't give us that guy. Give us Barabbas. Give us the lesser of the two. It's like my daughter, Marley, whom I love very much, when we have spaghetti, I love spaghetti. Now, I love guest spaghetti better than normal spaghetti. So I love spaghetti, right? But my daughter can't stand it. So give her a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. She's happy. She'll even eat a cucumber and some string cheese over spaghetti. And I think you, you're so content with the lesser of the two. You know, and on a grander scale, here we have this crowd coming in saying, give us that guy. Give us the guy that's bad. Give us the guy that's a, the known offender instead of Jesus. Sin will always promise fulfillment and leave you empty. Always. This is why we need the gospel every day. The gospel says that we are made new and that newness should, should, that newness we share should manifest itself in the way that we do things as followers of Christ compared to the way the world does things. The gospel says that we have something worth living and dying for so there is no need uh, to cling so tightly uh, to a life now that doesn't compare to a life later. The gospel informs my behavior as a father. It informs it. It doesn't mean I always act that way. But it informs my conduct as a husband. It informs my response to injustice, mistreatment, etc. The gospel gives me identity. And that identity shapes all things that I do. In the way that I live, move, and have my being. And I've never for a moment regretted God regenerating me. And causing me to see the need for the gospel. Not for a moment. You understand that though this may not, I don't know that this is, I I would say that it could be the intent of the author, could be the intent of the Holy Spirit to show us that you are Barabbas and I am Barabbas in this story. I mean, we're we're moments away from the gospel. (laughs) We're hours away. Away, Well, we're days away when you consider, obviously, the resurrection, which, which finalizes the gospel. 
We're hours away from these things, all these promises being fulfilled with regards to the gospel. And we're just a few days. But then we get this pulling back of the curtain, this foreshadowing of things to come. And Barabbas, who's a guilty man, being exchanged being, being exchanged for Jesus. So Jesus becomes what? A substitute so that Barabbas could go free. All right, hopefully you've seen that before. If not, just pretend like I've taught you something great and you know, pat me on the back, give me money, whatever you want to do. But it's a fantastic thing, right? It's awesome that Barabbas, his story, a guilty man, is set free. We don't know what happened after that. We don't know where Barabbas went. We don't know if he had a family, if he goes to his family to say, man, this is what happened. I was guilty, but I'm set free. Regardless of whether or not he said that, that's the truth, though. A guilty man, deserving of everything that he got and more, or was going to get, and more, is set free. But it was only allowable if there was a substitute. And Jesus became that substitute. So here is a prelude to the gospel itself. We are given a foreshadowing of the gospel that would take place. And so these final thoughts of application for you is this. The plan that was brought into fruition was rooted into two places. The hearts of men and the mind of God. One action, two intentions, which we see a theme of that in the scriptures. Joseph sold into slavery. Joseph didn't do anything wrong. He didn't commit the crimes he was accused of. And yet Joseph, what he went through, provided that his brothers, the guilty party, party could prosper in the end. So we have this same thing happening again as we know that God, according to what his hand and plan and predestined to occur, brought these events to pass, hard as they may be to digest, so that in the end we might prosper in all the ways that really matter in this Christian life. If Christians get bent out of shape over pandemics, government, and its leadership, and it says a lot about the heart of men, because at the end of the day, the application, in part, is that God brought all these things to pass. The plans of these men laid out seemed to work for a while until they didn't. They didn't anticipate a resurrection. They didn't anticipate the gospel going out and the world being turned upside down. They thought that they were putting an end to that definitively with the death of Jesus. But it didn't happen that way. Because man's plan will go so far, but God's plan will always, always reach its end will always find success and will always be the best possible scenario to ever transpire. Let's pray and we can be dismissed. Lord, give us grace to apply and understand this word further. Lord, help us to see these events in a way that we haven't seen these events before. Help us to connect with them in a very special and specific way, a way that highlights your grace, your sovereignty, your provision and providence. Lord, cause them to mean much and matter much to us. Help us to remember these things and to reflect on these things and to make right and necessary application of these things so that we can better and more fully image you with each day that you allow. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you're dismissed.